Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. Tonight I want to explore whether investors can still buy the great travel stocks of Australia, Qantas, Flight Centre, Webjet, Corporate Travel and Hello World. This was smashed during the coronavirus crash in the stock market. Some courageous investors got in early and they've seen legs up. But the question is, when the borders really open up, will these stocks go up even higher? And the question is, you know, is it too late or is it too early? Or have you missed that flight with these reopening trade stocks? It's a good question. Paul Ricard will have a look at that. He's from the Switzer Report. Then Charlie Aiken of Aiken Investment Management looks at if, if it's still safe to invest overseas. A lot of headwinds coming from overseas at the moment, inflation concerns, a poor jobs number in the US. And he tells us about his most recent purchase he's added to his fund, which I have to say looks pretty interesting. And then Paul Miliotis of Emmersquare Capital tells us what he's seeing in the commercial property market right now. And then Ying Yan Cheng of Kulavar Capital explains why we can forget the RBA and other central banks raising interest rates anytime soon. That's the show. So let's kick off with Paul Rickard and can we jump on board some of our best travel related stocks. Well, the big question a lot of people are asking is, they've seen a lot of the travel stocks take off and they're wondering, have I missed a boat? We're going to talk about that now with Paul Rickard of the Swiss Report. Hi, Paul. Hi, Peter. Well, it's a good question, Paul. Um, let's sort of set the scene for a, a takeoff for those stocks like Qantas and Webjet and so on. So on. Yeah, it's just worth recounting what's happened the last uh, month or so, Peter. Probably the big news came out of Qantas back on the 26th of August. Uh, Alan Joyce seemed pretty confident about restarting Qantas flights from the middle of December. Now, that's built on the theory that uh, when 80% of the population is vaccinated, if the government uh, keeps to its plan, it'll uh, reopen international borders to, to travellers. And also um, there'll be some special arrangements for vaccinated passengers. You know, maybe for example, you know, the uh, hotel quarantine will be replaced by home quarantine. So he seems pretty confident. So he's gone ahead and announced a, a whole lot of things happening from December. You'll be able to fly, not quite around the world, but most places. We've also had uh, in the last week or so, the Fiji government, Peter, came out with an announcement saying that they were ready to set to accept international tourists from November. And of course, both New South Wales and Victorian governments have got their own, you have talked about vaccination freedoms when uh, their targets are met. And that's gotta be good for travel as well. So, and we've seen what's been happening in the US and Europe where largely, you know, travel continues. So it, it looks pretty promising in terms of something happening. My only caution, Peter, is that uh, we've had a cut two or three full starts before when it comes to international travel. So that's obviously the caution, but the market, most of the, the travel stocks has gone up by about 10 to 12% on the back of it. Yeah. Let's go and look at the one I know you always like, Qantas. Here's a five-year chart. What does a five-year chart tell you, Paul? Yeah, well, I just wanted to set the scene on Qantas, first of all, just because uh, what it shows you, Peter, is that uh, we've the highs back before the pandemic around about just over $7.00. But if I go to the one-year chart, which is the next one coming up on your screen, Pete, what you can see there, of course, is we've had about three or four times uh, it's bounced off around about the 550 level, which is about where it is today, 545 or so. Now, the brokers uh, have a target price of about $6 on it. Um, 
My guess is that Qantas can get back up there towards that $6 level. I, I think there's a bit more left in this, uh, into this sort of anticipation of the December, you know, reopening. I think Qantas is pretty determined. Um, and certainly it's used the pandemic to really transform its, transform its cost base. It's reset its international program. And we've seen that with the collapse of Virgin and, and the start of some sort of Virgin competitor, you know, its share in the domestic market has also changed for the better. So lots of positives for Qantas going ahead. It's just a question of, you know, what happens in the restart if, if it does the restart go ahead? And if it doesn't, does that mean the share price heads back south again? But I think there's a bit more left in Qantas. It should point out that the brokers don't expect Qantas to be profitable um, until FY23 at the earliest and not getting back to its pre-pandemic levels until FY24. Yeah, my, my guess is the, the first leg up, or we've seen a number of first legs up, but the most recent first leg up will be followed up maybe around you know, March or even February if international borders are opening up a lot faster than we, we expect. Let's go to Flight Center now, Paul. Yeah, I want to show you the Flight Center chart. Let's, let's start with the one-year chart and just to make the comment that the, the brokers aren't quite as bullish in Flight Center. They've got a, uh, a target of only $16.86 and it's currently trading around $18.35. But at least in the 12, last 12 months, Peter, it looks pretty much the same as the Qantas chart. We're back to sort of you know, this level we've seen on at least two previous occasions. If I take you to the next chart, which is five years, you can see that Flight Center was actually over $60 um, mm -hmm. back in 2018-19. Uh, so we're a long way short of where it got to. Um, I guess my only my hesitation with Flight Center, Peter, is that I'm just not sure that the with the headwinds and sort of the whole travel agent model, uh, just what happens to that going forward? And uh, they, they've laid off a lot of staff. They've, they've closed a lot of branches. So their cost base is, a much, is, is in a much better position to, to withstand a, you know, a, a steady recovery than it was. But I'm not sure whether we're going to get it back to $60 anytime soon. And I'm just not my number one stock in this area. Yeah. And I guess a lot of people used to actually go to Flight Centre and because of the coronavirus, a lot of older people who never used to buy stuff online have become really comfortable. So Flight Centre is going to have, probably have less people wanting to go to, to actual shops and that could change the business model going forward. Let's go to Webjet now, Paul. Yeah, Webjet's in the same vein, Peter, but a little different. I think it's more dependent on corporate travel than sort of perhaps on the, on the retail market. And I'm not saying Flight Centre's not in both, but Webjet's a bit more on the corporate market. Uh, again, look, trading pretty much where the broker's seat is, uh, around about $6. That's pretty consistent with the target. And again, we're back up to that sort of level we've seen on two previous occasions uh, in, uh, in the last 12 months. Okay, let's go to a, a particular starring one that's had a great time since the coronavirus crash, and that's corporate travel. Yeah, and in a stock where there are a lot, a lot of short interests at one stage, I'll talk about that later, but... Yeah, I guess on that chart, it's actually been in a pretty steady uptrend for the last 12 months. And uh, it's come up from about $16 up to around about $22. So, um, you know, it hasn't done too badly. Um, brokers see it as going a bit a bit higher. I think they're pretty, they've really survived, Peter, because they're much more um, global in orientation and uh, they're getting good business overseas. Um, but uh, certainly the, the market has liked this stock um, very much so over the last 12 months. Now, an interesting one and a much smaller cap one is Hello World. What are you seeing there, Paul? Yeah, this would point out to us because we know a couple of, of our fund managers that we look pretty carefully at uh, have 
put it's gone back on their radar a little bit. Uh, yeah. So around about two dollars. The brokers are a bit mixed on this. Nowhere near the coverage of the other stocks. Only a couple of the major brokers follow this. Uh, one's at about three dollars fifteen. The others at a dollar sixty. That's why the average is about two thirty-four. Um, look again. Your more traditional uh, travel business. And again, the question is, you know, it, it's over the last twelve months. It's actually, you know, it hasn't gone up. In fact, it's gone down from where it was in November, December. Uh, just what's going to happen to the traditional custom, you know, travels agent? Uh, I guess is one of those unknowns. We're going to have to see how that plays out. There are arguments that say that people might need more help. Um, going forward with their travel because they'll be placing greater safe emphasis on safety and and, and where they're going and, and what the accommodation looks like and all those type of things. I don't know, Peter, I think the jury's out on, on, on Hello World travel. Um, yeah. my, my view is, Paul, that if you if you go for Hello World or Flight Centre, you may well need a year to see a, a reasonable return out of them, where the other ones may well have be far more reactive to open borders. But I still think there's upside with a company like Hello World. Let's go to the short positions now. Interesting. Yeah, and I think the, the last way to just to disclude this discussion, Peter, is look at the short positions. Now, these are the positions taken by the professionals in the market. In other words, they're short selling the shares. And this is the percentage of shares sold short. Now, what I always caution with people, this should not be your only guidance, right? I just put this up there because it's, it's an input into decision making. And... I think it's always interesting to see where the professionals are betting. Now, I make the caution is the professionals, they don't always get this right, Peter. We can think of spectacular examples where they got it horribly wrong, right? Yeah. Companies like uh, JB Hi-Fi is a classic where they've always been short and they've been horribly wrong in that. But, you know, over time, you, they, they, you, you can't do this unless you make money. So they get it right more often than they get it wrong. And what that tells you is that they still some pretty big short positions in Flight Centre and Webjet. And by and large, and the other three companies are almost sort of, this is just within the normal range. So um, the, the professionals, you know, see if anything, aren't betting against Qantas, but they are betting against both Flight Centre and Webjet. And uh, I guess that's just a, want, a note of caution. If you are looking to uh, take a position through those companies, it doesn't mean that they, you can't do really well, but just bear in mind, there are some others in the market who have a very contrary position to what you hold. Yeah. And, and the bottom line is it would have been great if you, if you got in maybe in April, May, June of last year, you would have made a lot of money, but these stocks were really smashed and crashed and they have snuck up on the basis that normalcy is coming and a lot of the easy money has been made. But I guess if you're a, a very cautious investor, probably Qantas is probably your safest bet because it will get, grow over time being a, a leading uh, player in the industry and uh, even the brokers agree with that analysis. Yeah, right. I think you're right, Peter. I prefer through Qantas, a bit safer. Um, and I think there's probably a little more upside. I think we could definitely see sort of $6. Well, I say definitely, but I think there's a good chance we could see up to up towards $6 in the next couple of months or so. Okay, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. It's Paul Regard from The Switzer Report. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below.
Well, for a look at investing overseas, we have Charlie Aiken of Aiken Investment Management. Good to see you, mate. Yeah, good afternoon, Pete. How are you? Very good. Before we start looking at some individual stocks that you might be thinking look like good value uh, going forward, let's just set the scene. You know, we saw last week uh, in the US, Dow Jones was down five days in a row, but it wasn't down all that much. I think it was less than 2%. And there's a bit of instability around. Locally, we're a bit, we're a bit worried at the moment. And you've got, I guess, Delta is probably the, the big question mark for lots of uh, investors. You've got inflation concerns, you've got the possibility that maybe the US is not growing as strongly as we expected because of that bad job number we saw uh, last month. Putting it all together, there's a whole mixture of, uh, of probably headwinds. Where do you think this market's going, Charlie? Well, Pete, I'll give you one answer to that. It's September. People get nervous in September. Markets generally do a little bit wobbly in September and it's doing a classic September. I think all of those issues that you mentioned are well known and I don't see them as great concerns, quite frankly. And you've noticed that most of the pullbacks in US markets and global markets have been very, very shallow. I mean, cash rates still remain zero. Bond yields are very low. They've actually gone, gone lower in recent times. And I think it's just a, a more of a seasonal pullback in equity markets. And it's a very small one, Pete. Mm. People, people always try to back solve why the market's moving in one direction or another, trying to point to some, some clear point. And I just don't think there is one at the moment. The markets have had an almighty run. Mm. The summer's ending in the in the northern hemisphere. They're probably a little bit fearful of the Delta variant in the in the northern winter. I don't disagree with that, but broadly, I still think equities look really good. Pete, we're fully invested. We're, we're, if we if we could have, if we had more money, we'd be more invested. You know, what I mean, there's so many opportunities out there. I think look interesting, particularly as the world reopens. So I'm not concerned about the price action. At, you know, so far in September, and I don't think there's any any giant indicator that tells me to worry. Yeah, I've been saying some of the pieces I've been writing that. If the market pulled back for four, five, or seven percent, I'd be a buyer on the basis that I, I, I look at 2022, and the, every uh, economist who I respect tells me there's going to be a strong boom 2022, and that's got to factor into profits and corporate and, and ultimately stock prices over the course of 2022. Is, is that reasonable? Yeah, Look, I think, look, it's not going to be the same easy PCP comparison to a year ago. We all know that, you know, the 50%, 100% lifts off the COVID bottom. We get that, right? So, but all, that also comes into account with inflation readings, which will fade a little bit versus the PCP as the PCP goes higher. GDP growth, I think, is still going to be adequate. Look, I think, I think there's plenty of reason to be optimistic about the year ahead. I think the vaccine rates are going up globally and governments are learning to live with COVID, rightly or wrongly. I mean, you, you can see that, you know, I have friends... You have friends in the Northern Hemisphere. I have a brother in London. He's going to soccer games with 80,000 people there. You know, there's NFL games on in America with no spacing, rightly or wrongly. And I think, like, even though it's the darkest moment in Australia right now, I think we can look forward to that here as well. And I think the consumer spending sort of celebration that comes, Pete, whether it's going to restaurants, hotels, travelling, getting on a plane, will be very, very large. And it is worth being, you know, leveraged in a portfolio or exposed in a portfolio to dare I say it, sort of reopening, reopening stocks. So look, I'm optimistic on the year ahead. I think interest rates are going to stay at zero. I think it's very hard to get interest rates up. And the bond market is trying to paint you a picture of sort of Goldilocks, dare I, dare I say it, you know, okay growth with lowish inflation with interest rates staying very low. Now, that's great for equities, you know, particularly equities with pricing power, in my view. So, yeah, I, I broadly think the, the year ahead looks okay. Okay. Yeah, I know you made a point that Apple uh, did a public um, show and tell recently. Was there anything there that made you either want to buy or sell Apple? 
Oh, it just reminded me that this is a 2.5 trillion, I say trillion market cap company. And I never thought I'd say that in my lifetime. But I suppose as the biggest company in the world, we've got to pay attention to it. We don't own Apple at the moment. We think it's a bit overvalued just versus its growth. We think there's basically better opportunities elsewhere. Think about it, Pete. What do you have to do to grow, a, to turn the dial on a 2.5 trillion market cap company? If the shares go up 10%, they go up 250 billion in market cap, you know, a BHP basically. You know, so they have to announce something enormous to, to drive revenue growth. Now, they're a good business, but 50% of the revenue still comes from the iPhone. And the iPhone 13 that was launched was not dramatically different to the iPhone 12. It's got a better camera. It's got better battery life. It's just a bit of an evolution. You know, won't you and I and our kids won't just run out and get an iPhone 13 because it's got some new gadget. Probably hang on to our current one for a little bit longer. But look, I mean, there's also a little bit of increasing regulatory risk Apple in terms of the App Store bit of regulatory scrutiny coming to the App Store. If you look at the App Store, it's only 6% of Apple revenue, but it's 16% of profits. It's that profitable. And you know, the revenue sharing deals they have with people who have, have apps, et cetera, et cetera. And 66% of it comes from gaming apps, people just sitting around playing on their phone and stuff. So I think there's a bit of regulatory, a bit more increased regulatory oversight coming there. So don't be wrong, Apple, great business, great company, great balance sheet but very hard to drive growth when you're a $2.5 trillion market cap company, Pete. Okay. What has been the latest overseas company that you've bought and why? Well, the one we've added to and taken in well into our top 10 holdings is an industrial US industrial business called Highcut. Now, it manufactures, second manufactures, replacement airline parts. So I'm really quite bullish on the, the reopening trade, global travel, vaccine passports, whatever it is. Oh, people are stinging travel, Pete. You know, look, there's only so many laps of the block I can do. You know, <laughs> it is time to get on a plane. I've, I've done the lap of the block in every direction, Pete. And you don't get a, a glass of champagne when you're, you're a lap. No, no, I'll just, you know. No, so look, I'm very bullish on the aviation recovery. I think planes are going to come out of the desert. I think things are going to go broadly back to normal over the next couple of years but there's a big replacement part cycle needs to happen. And Heiko, which is only a mid-cap American company, majority owned by a family called Mendelssohn, who've owned it for 30 years, is a really, really good business. It does like stuff like the tray table latches, the toilet latches, the brakes on the plane, the tyres on the plane, everything you can think of that keeps a plane in the air. And they've got a fantastic uh, safety record. They've never been involved in any accident or anything, or one of their parts hasn't failed in 30 years. But the best thing is that the barriers to entry here are enormous. You need to be approved by the FAA before you can put any parts on any plane. Mm. So there's huge barrier to entry there. So I just think it's a good business, great solid industrial business, mid-cap industrial American business with great balance sheet, but very good leverage to, you know, global aviation really picking up, picking back up. Because the bit we're missing at the moment is international travel. Domestic travel in America is well back up in the aviation sector. But once international opens up, I think it's really good for businesses like Heiko and really good for businesses like MasterCard as people travel. Just, you know, people just getting out there and doing cross-border transactions and getting out there and spending some money. So there's a bit of wealth in the world now, Pete, you know, where share markets are, where property markets have gone. You know, consumers have a bit of purchasing power despite some stimulus fading from COVID. So I'm very bullish on the recovery in global travel and that's one way of playing it. Okay. Um, you've been investing in this market for quite a long time, even though you are a very young person, um, Charlie. Oh. Um, one thing I noticed was, if you, if you look at where the uh, US market was before the crash, and you look to see what's gone up by, it's up 
So if you go back, to, you hit the bounce, and then you, if you measured off where it was before the, it's got 34%. In Australia, we're, we're up only 5%. Mm. Now, that, that makes me think that next year, there's a good chance that we could, we could grow at a faster rate than the US market, if, even though the US market is going to go up. There have been plenty yeah, of possible our market has grown far because we have we've had lockdowns, we've had restrictions, we had Fortress Australia. Could all this stuff, in a sense, help us have a bigger rebound on the stock market when we start opening up? All comes down to China, I reckon, Pete. I mean, obviously Australia's got more direct exposure to China more than the US market. Remember of the SP 500, six mega cap tech stocks make up 25% of it. We don't have six mega cap tech stocks. In fact, we just lost one. We're losing one in afterpay, I suppose. Yeah. You know, so it's going over to, to Square. So Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Nvidia, Amazon, and Google make up 25% of the SP 500. And they've done the heavy lifting, as you know. Mm. You know they're one of the reasons, they're probably the vast bulk of the reason the market's 25% better than the Australian market. Look, I think the industrial recovery stocks in Australia look really interesting, whether it's a Qantas or a, you know, a Wes Farmers or a Boral or something like that. Absolutely interesting. And there's a reason that the super funds are trying to take over Sydney Airport. That's a smart play. Buy it in a pandemic. Super smart. Buy a 50-year concession in a pandemic. That's what investors should be thinking too. Buy really long-duration great businesses in a pandemic that will go back to normal. I mean, we'll all be going back to Sydney Airport soon. It'll just be owned by someone else. So look, I look, I broadly, I think we need to be just a little bit careful in commodities because China is taking some uh, you know, some slowing actions, as you can see, and the Beijing is becoming quite unpredictable in its uh, in its some of its behaviour. I mean, we you know we saw Macau casinos yesterday, Peter, were down thirty percent a day. They just decided there was new rules. I mean, it's almost uninvestable up there, Pete. So we just need to be a little bit little bit careful. Whereas I feel far more comfortable in America. And and to be honest, I think I think I'm. I don't invest directly in Australia at the moment, but I think Australia will look great in six to nine months' time. You know, imagine the, 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 the pent-up demand here from people just sitting around. Our two major cities have been locked down for hundreds of days, mm. hundreds, you know, and it's not, no one's, I'm not even blaming anyone. I look to the future and the future is a vaccinated world. We're out there to out the normal spending and doing normal things, enjoying our lives. So I think, yes, could Australia play a bit of catch up in certain stocks versus America over the next 12 months? Yeah, no doubt about that. But I think like in all things, Pete, you just need to be a bit selective. It won't be everything. Yeah, in many ways. And I know you um, you jumped on board Microsoft when a lot of people might have thought, well, Microsoft has had a good run anyway. Are you getting on a horse that's already done enough running? But those really good quality companies can keep on running and keep going higher. As, as has been the case for Microsoft. Well, you look at Australia. When you we talk about quality in Australia, you think CSL, you think Macquarie Group, you think Wes Farmers. You know, you, there's a lot. There's a, it's a short list. CBA, I think, in the banks. That's absolutely fair. You know, and it's 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 those companies just keep on giving. Yeah, they have the odd month where they don't perform or something. But that's not the point. You know, the, the compounding effect you get from those great, you know, organic growth growth businesses that have dominant, you know, industry positions is fantastic. So, look, I think we'll find more of those. They could be emerging, you know, somewhere in the, in the in the tech space or something. I don't know. But you've got to stick with your winners. I mean, that's the thing we all get wrong, Pete. We're all tempted to trim some Microsoft or CSL or and then let Telstra be in your portfolio for 20 years, you know. We all should have cut Telstra a long time ago, you know, like, and, and got with, you know, things that had a bit more, you know, a bit more organic growth. So, look, I mean, I think that I'd be, you know, Microsoft, even for us last week, announced a $60 billion buyback and they're lifting the dividend. 
I mean, the numbers are telephone book numbers when you're dealing with it, but it's just still a great business. So my only, my only advice or a view to the, the, the listeners, Pete, would just be stick with your winners. Good stuff. Charlie Aitken, Aitken Investment Management, a fund manager. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Well, joining him now for his view from the vantage point of being a player in the property market, particularly the commercial market, we have Paul Miliotis from M Square Capital. Hi, Paul. Hello, Peter. So what are you seeing um, you know, with uh, property at the moment? We're all always preoccupied with the residential price rises that are always in the news. And it's kind of relevant to you because you, you lend against the value of residential properties when people come looking for, for commercial loans and whatever. But what are you seeing? Look, on, on the ground, we're still seeing a, a huge demand, uh, a borrower demand um, from borrowers that need credit. Um, and we're also seeing um, that investors have still got a thirst to invest in this space. So from that perspective, we haven't seen much change from, from what we're used to. What we are seeing a change um, in is, is the fact that the government supports a little bit different from what it was in the first COVID, um, well, when the COVID outbreak happened. We don't think the, the strength is, is provided by the government where it needs to be. So we are seeing a few cracks. Um, we're seeing cracks, particularly in the commercial space, um, in that we believe look, tenants aren't going to have tenants aren't going to be paying their rents. Not all of them are going to be paying their rents. People are struggling on the ground. Landlords, you know, will be struggling making their repayments with the tenants not paying the rent. So either one or two things are going to happen. You're going to have a flood of commercial property in the market, or you're going to see a high vacancy rate. And that's notwithstanding that the actual commercial values of property are still very very high. Mm. Um, they're still performing very well. So. Residential is performing well, commercial is still performing well, but we are quite cautious against commercial assets. So, so Paul, are you saying then that there, there could be, so let's take, for example, if you had a commercial building in a, in a suburban shopping area and, and, and the, the actual function, the, the business there is not doing well because it's, just, it's not a cafe, for example. Cafes are, are killing them in suburban areas. Mm. Yeah, it may well be a shop that has to be closed under lockdown rules. Mm. Are you saying that a, a shop like that, um, the landlord might say, I want to get out of this. And, and when, he, when he goes to sell, a buyer will say, hang on, this is, this is affected by a temporary lockdown. When the lockdown's over, this is going to be a valuable property again. Is that the kind of thing that's... It is. I mean, I think there's going to be a short-term shock before that in that prior, the the government shored up the the tenancies in that landlords weren't charging any rents. Now we're not seeing that grace period happen. Some landlords are saying, well, you have to pay me 50% of your rent. Other ones are saying, regardless that you're closed, you still need to pay me rent. So the actual tenancies are going to struggle and may not come out of this lockdown. Mm. If that happens and the landlords are not receiving their rent, there might be a short-term change in in what happens in the marketplace. Mm. So we're very cautious with looking at those type of opportunities. But there are also some really strong opportunities. As you mentioned, you know, certain cafes in suburban areas, they might be in takeaway only mode, but they're still making good money. 
Mm. Um, like we had an opportunity for argument's sake, there was a petrol station that we lent against. Now, typically petrol stations, there's a bit of risk around them, but the tenant was, a, it was a Caltex petrol station with a Woolworths lease. Mm. Um, so the reality is you're, you're, you're not guaranteed, but the, the, the risk of losing the rent for that particular landlord is low. The other thing with that particular opportunity was that, look, it was a service station in Strathfield. Um, if the tenant left, our valuer said the actual property would be worth more. So for our investors, it was de-risked. We, we take a lot of effort in our business to actually analyse the tenancy risk. Yeah. So we're not saying we're not, we're not looking at commercial opportunities, but we have to be very, very wary of the type of opportunities that, that we are providing to our investors, regardless um, of, of where it is and what it is. Um, What's happening? You indicated to me that US or overseas funds are starting to come in the market. Look, we're seeing we're seeing a, a fundamental shift. We believe in in the commercial space in Australia. The the banks are, we find they've got capital restraints um, on the ground. We are seeing a huge skill shortage in the finance industry across the board. So we believe the banks are going to continue with what the low, low hanging fruit is, which is residential home loans. It's standardised, um, you know, a, a house is, is a house. Residential is much easier to have to, to standardise and scale. Mm. Where that leaves is a, a massive gap in the commercial funding space. Mm. So what we're seeing is like in the US for argument's sake, 70% of commercial mortgages are written by non-bank lenders. In Australia, only 8% is written by non-bank lenders. But the, the most important bit with why we're seeing people come here is the returns investors are making. So in the US, if you're investing in the private credit space, your investors are generally getting 3% net returns. In Australia, like our investors are getting returns of 6.75 net for property based in the eastern seaboard of Australia. So you're seeing people like Airs Management putting bids and, look, this didn't go through, but it, it shows you what's happening into AMP. You've got uh, Apollo buying 50% of a, of a non-bank lender. So you, you're seeing a seismic shift that they can see there's opportunity in the Australian non-bank lender, uh, in the non-bank kind of sector. Um, so we, we believe we are going to go a lot like what the US is, which is your viewers are going to see a lot more private credit opportunities. They're going to see a lot more um, commercial loans written by non-banks. Okay. So, so what does that mean then um, for the people who lend you their money effectively as savers mm -hmm. and you then on-lend it to borrowers who are often commercial businesses who put their, property, their residential property up as collateral? Mm -hmm. What's that going to do in terms of if there's more competition, will, will the returns offered to savers be higher or lower? Look, we, we, with more competition becomes a, a push down on returns. I mean, we're still seeing strong returns for our investors, as I mentioned before, that they're returning roughly, depending on the opportunity, 6.7% net. With more money coming in, you will find that returns go down. But our job as fund managers is to find that niche where we can give the lowest possible risk to our investors for the highest possible return. So, I mean, as I mentioned before, again, we, we gravitated to doing a commercial tenancy of a petrol station. We're gravitating to other um, sectors where we can see an advantage um, in the marketplace, which we're trying to hold our returns as high as we can for our investors. Okay. 
One last question. You know, you've, you've painted the picture that you know, some businesses uh, and, and landlords are having challenges at the moment. Is that making you guys you know, more um, stringent in your assessment of what can go wrong with the, the people who are borrowing from you? Look, we've got a very robust um, process in terms of how we analyse which which deals we do. And it's not just about the collateral of a, of a property. We look at the character of the borrower. We look at their, their history in terms of how they've repaid their mortgages. But collateral is a very important part. So what we're doing now is we've got a property team which analyses which sectors are the lower risk to lend to. So as we, we, we like the industrial um, sector for argument's sake, so industrial property. Um, residential is very strong currently. So we, we being a secure lender, we, we lend all across the Eastern Seaboard of Australia, but we pivoted at the first COVID outbreak to residential property. Um, because we do feel that that is the most resilient and it's proven to be very resilient in your Melbournes, in your Sydneys and in your Brisbane's. It performed extremely well. So is our process changing? Um, we are very cautious in certain sectors, um, property sectors, but you still need to tick a lot of boxes before you look at collateral to do a deal. Okay. Is there anything else you want to um, share with us from your, your insights from the sector? Um, look, what I do want to say is we are seeing a lot of people pop up in our sector. So you need to be cautious on what, what the underlying security is. Um, we, for argument's sake, we've seen people come to us and go, oh, Paul, um, we've seen opportunities at 10% net return. Yeah. Well, that's great, but when you're, you're only secured against a company and you don't have um, residential security behind it, I think you need to be cautious about those type of things. So if you don't understand what you're getting yourself into, just don't look at the headline rate of what you're going to be getting. I think we're seeing a lot more in this marketplace where people really want to get a return on their monies. So they're looking at anything and everything. Alternative classes of investment um, are there for, for your viewers to have a look at. But err on the side of caution when you see higher returns. Higher returns sometimes... Um, they are fine, but you, you, know, you are going up the risk curve. You're not looking at a term deposit. You need to really understand what you're doing. Yeah, that's a really important point, that when you, you're offered really high returns, they are simultaneously offering you higher risk, and that's the important point. That's it. And look, sometimes even when you're looking at lower returns, we see some things saying, geez, it's a 4% return and you're still unsecured. So don't get skewed with just the return really ask the question, what am I getting myself into? What is the underlying security? In the unlikely event you don't get your, your monthly distribution, what are you falling back on from a collateral perspective? Paul, thanks for joining us the program. Thanks, Peter. It's Paul Miliotis from M Square Capital. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Well, joining us now is Ying Yi and Cheng from Cooler Bar Capital. Thanks for coming to the program, Ying Yi. Thanks, Peter. 
Now, we always like to talk to you to get the, the latest feel about what might happen to interest rates. And uh, a really important meeting uh, in the US last week, I, I actually described it on radio as the, the meeting of the most boring people in the world. <laughs> but it can actually have some of the most exciting outcomes for the markets from when central bankers all get together and start talking about what they need to do for the, the world economy. It can really move markets. And last week's meeting and the uh, address by Jay Powell, the, uh, the Fed boss, really did have an impact on markets. So tell us what we learned from that meeting, Yingye. Yeah, look, I mean, for, for many in the market, I, I suppose, if anything, um, it was considered more of a, a dovish taper. Um, and perhaps you may want to sort of translate that a bit. Um, but essentially, it was just very much that they're not in a hurry to necessarily, you know, taper or raise interest rates or tighten monetary policy. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, his remarks, um, you know, were very much consistent with uh, possibly a, a tapering announced later in the year, which is aligned with the consensus view that um, people sort of took away from the July FOMC meeting minutes as well. So, you know, for what's really sort of stood out um, from my perspective, if anything, is that, you know, the recovery in the US will be strong enough for them to start withdrawing uh, and tapering quantitative easing, i.e. bond purchases this year. Um, what would potentially delay that is a surge of hospitalizations uh, around, you know, Delta. And, you know, Peter, I'm sure you've been keeping an eye on, you know, hospitalizations globally, but in the US, you'll notice that they're increasing quite dramatically. And in fact, we're getting up to sort of almost at levels that we saw at the very height of the pandemic last year, which is, you know, quite serious despite, you know, them being vaccinated. They do have a slightly lower vaccination rate than, say, for example, the UK and Canada. Um, however, you know, it's obviously uh, still affecting them, even though they're more advanced in their vaccination rates than, they, than say, Australia, for example. Yeah. And, of course, I bet a lot of those high levels of uh, hospitalizations are in states where they aren't vaccinating to the same level as say California and New York. That's right. That's right. So I heard Carolina is quite serious. Yeah. So one thing I took out of that um, address from uh, Jay Powell was that he kind of said this, you know, how, how I like to bring things down to more simple um, analysis. Yeah. Okay, we might taper in September, but it'll probably be December. But you guys shouldn't be thinking about interest rate rises anytime soon. That's the kind of message I took from him. Did you exactly. get Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah, so, I, and I would quote that being substantially more progress needs to be seen before rate hikes can commence. So a tapering of asset purchases is imminent. So, you know, not buying bonds. However, um, I think, you know, in some respects, you know, the, the late, we need to take into consideration the labour market, right? So the labour market is not quite where it was prior to the pandemic and is still on the mend. And what will be particularly important for markets, um, you know, in the coming weeks is actually uh, Friday's non-farm payrolls. 
So that will give uh, an indication of how the labour market is doing. Um, and I agree with you, uh, Peter, raising rates is still a long way off. And the Fed will want to be convinced that inflation is sustainably over 3% um, before they actually start hiking rates, even if they do taper imminently, as I mentioned. Okay, so basically his message to the market helped um, the stock market go up, particularly tech stocks, they did very well because, as you know, they're, they're affected by rising bond yields and whatever. You play in the, the bond uh, market and bond yields are really important to you. Let's just go out of America for a moment and concentrate on Australia because we get, uh, we, we get uh, national accounts numbers this week and maybe I may well show this after that's happened, but let's just assume that national account numbers come in as a small positive rather than a negative. Um, uh, that's why my, my best guess. If we, if we did get, say, double dip recession type talk, how would that change the way you guys might play the bond market? Yeah, good question. I mean, look, um, really for us, firstly, we play in zero interest rate duration um, portfolios. That's the way that we run our portfolios typically. So there's no interest rate risk. So if there was the threat of inflation, then that doesn't affect our portfolios to the extent that we don't have any interest rate risk. With respect to a double dip recession, then I would expect that the RBA, um, who has been actually seemingly overly optimistic recently, um, particularly looking out to next year, we would actually expect them to you know, provide more support for um, you know, the economy via their current quantitative easing programs. So you know, currently they are purchasing um, $5 billion of bonds a week. Uh, now in July, they signaled that they would taper this to $4 billion a week. But we've got to remember, it's not so much the, the amount that they're doing each week that is important, it's the total amount that they do in, you know, aggregate. Uh, and so, you know, if they were to continue at say $5 billion until September, which is obviously, you know, next, <laughs> next week or this coming week, uh, and then, you know, they start move to $4 billion, they could leave or continue with that quantitative easing program past the six months that, you know, could be expected. Um, given, you know, QE1, QE2 were six months in total. So if that is going to be the case, you know, we could expect them to, you know, maintain at $5 billion or they could actually increase those bond purchases. Either way, that is extremely beneficial for the actual bonds that they're purchasing, right? And the bonds that they are purchasing are Commonwealth government bonds and state government bonds, otherwise known as semis. Uh, now, at the moment, um, given the lockdowns, as we know, the states are you know, bearing quite a lot of heat, particularly New South Wales and Victoria. And if anything, these lockdowns cost money, these states are going to have to issue debt. Uh, and if the RBA wants to be supportive of that, um, then it could you know, actually tweak uh, their bond purchases. You know, this is not necessarily our core view, but it's a, a, a scenario that could take place. If they were to tweak it, then obviously we expect them uh, that to be particularly beneficial for state government. So at the moment, uh, of the $5 billion a week that they're purchasing in government bonds, they're only purchasing $1 billion. Even if they tweak it and increase that proportion, 
um, that would be incredibly beneficial. And, you know, the, these uh, state government bonds form, you know, quite a significant part of our portfolio because we expect that the states will benefit once they come out of lockdown, but they also continue to benefit from any, you know, quantitative easing program. Okay. Let, let's just cut to the bottom line because people watching this who may well have invested in either uh, other cooler bar um, bond funds or even the, the Switzer uh, high yield fund. Is this going to be good or bad for returns? Oh, it will be good for returns. Okay, it will so be good for returns because really more buying, more buying at the end of the day, right? So, you know, either way, there's, I mean, I, I see it as good news on different sort of fronts. You know, if, um, if the RBA wants to step in and provide more support on top of what they're already providing, then that means more demand for the bonds that we already own. Um, the other situation would be actually if we come out of lockdown sooner. So, you know, obviously we've been doing a lot of modelling around when we get to 70 to 80% vaccination rates. Uh, and, you know, internally we, we, we think that's going to be early October uh, just based on the current trajectory. Um, and if that's the case, then you should expect, you know, an economic rebound after that, just purely because, we have been prevented from doing a lot of activities currently. And once we reopen, we can go back to those sort of activities. So uh, no doubt there would be an economic rebound. And actually the states themselves, um, you know, are actually spending about, like for example, New South Wales is actually spending about 50% less than what they had actually budgeted um, on the cost of the lockdown. Yeah. So, you know, the sooner that we, we come out of lockdown, that will be good for growth and, you know, ultimately good for the bottom line of these states because they won't have to issue as much debt. And once we reopen, you know, they'll get their GST revenue, they'll get their stamp duty revenue, uh, payroll tax, land tax, etc. Okay, so the, the final point then is if we come out of this quicker than, than it might be expected and we rebound faster than people expect. Is that going to be good for your your bottom line? Or, that, will be, or that, will, that will also be good for our portfolios. Good stuff. Fantastic. Good to see that most scenarios suit Coolbar Capital. Thanks for joining us, Yin Yang. Thank you, Peter. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. And if you want to know more about the companies my experts like, then take a 21-day free trial of the Switzer Report. Go to switzerreport.com.au. Once again, thanks for joining us. I'll see you on Monday.